Welcome to the Nursing Home 411 podcast by the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. I'm Eric Goldwine, and on the show, I'm joined by LTCCC Executive Director Richard Mollett and Policy Attorney Dara Vilanajad to chat about COVID-19 and how infection control issues have plagued nursing home facilities long before the current pandemic. We also chat about the problems posed by newly implemented visitation restrictions aimed at stopping the spread of the virus. Hope you enjoy our discussion. Welcome to the Nursing Home 411 podcast. I'm Eric Goldwyn, and I'm here on the phone with LTCCC's Executive Director, Richard Mollett, and LTCCC Policy Attorney, Dara Vilanajad. It's good to have you on the show. Well, thanks. It's great, great to, to be here. here. So we're recording this on Thursday, March 19th, amid the coronavirus pandemic that's had and will continue to have devastating effects on nursing home residents and their families nationwide. Uh, just this morning, the Seattle Times reported that the Life Care Center of Kirkland in Washington State has been directly linked to 142 confirmed cases and 35 deaths, and facilities across the country are experiencing deadly outbreaks. Uh, Richard, you for years have been banging the drum on poor infection control policies in nursing home settings. What role has infection control played in this current situation in in the Seattle, in the Kirkland Center, in the in the reports you're seeing about coronavirus? Uh, well well thanks Eric. That's a um, that's a really good question. I actually had not heard about the um, the extent to which the the facility in Kirkland, Washington the impact it's had on so many people um, in that report this morning. But as you know, I'm sure everyone has heard, there are reports coming out um, you know, daily, which I think is good because one of the more important parts is making sure that people are aware of what's going on and, of course, you know, aware of some of the good practices and protocols for preventing uh, the spread of infection. And that really gets to why you know, we've been, you know, long been so concerned about uh, infection control and prevention in nursing homes. There's a, you know, our organization exists because there are a lot of serious, longstanding and widespread problems in terms of residents getting, you know, having access to appropriate care, uh, residents uh, being cared for safely and, of course, humanely and with dignity. The issue with infection control, which I think makes it particularly interesting and of course you know brings us now to this issue of of the coronavirus and, and our significant concern is that it's fairly simple you know what we have been telling people over the past several weeks and what we were telling people you know over the years is that you know the deficiencies the citations for when nursing homes are cited for inappropriate or ineffective infection control practices for the most part they are pretty basic and they're exactly mm -hmm. the same kind of things that we hear the CDC and CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the state governments telling everyone right now, wash your hands, use a sanitizer, uh, you know, don't reuse things, don't sneeze on people, uh, you know, keep some safe distance if you're not feeling well, 
cover your mouth if, if you sneeze, etc. I mean, this is all basic stuff that most of us learned about when we were very young children. It's really simple. It's not, you know, rocket science or anything, but, and, and that's again, what we need, you know, essentially to safeguard residents on a day-to-day -day basis against, you know, the flu and, and other things. And of course, now that we're facing the coronavirus and um, the lack of any uh, treatment for it, the lack of any, um, any kind of a vaccine, et cetera, makes it a particularly dire situation for residents. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, as, as, as you mentioned, this is, this is a problem that is, it's getting attention because of coronavirus. Um, but it's, uh, it's been something that, uh, that there've been stories and reports on this, uh, with other, uh, with other outbreaks, uh, be it the flu, be it, uh, some other, uh, infection. Are there any that that come to mind that that you've looked at over the years um, that are similar to the current situation at Life Care Center? Uh, well, yes, actually, uh, two years ago there was a, of a um, I forgot what exactly it was, but I think twelve adenovirus. Thank you, adenovirus, um, and twelve children in a nursing home. In New Jersey, the Wanakue Nursing Home, um, which is in Wanakue, New Jersey, uh, I think it's mm -hmm. since changed its name, but that outraged people across the country that there were, um, you know, young children in this facility, and they were, um, they were exposed to this virus, and many of them died, and many more, of course, uh, than, uh, you know, many died, excuse me, 12 died uh, specifically, but many, many more were infected and were harmed. And these were obviously vulnerable children who, who were in need of nursing home care. So yeah, there's been, there's been examples in the past. I mean, there's certainly been uh, mm -hmm. other types of crises that have happened from which the, neither the industry nor the state agencies nor CMS really learned what they, um, what they should be doing. And, and most importantly, I guess, not only just learn, but but I guess at the same time, being held accountable for their uh, for their substandard care or substandard practices. So, um, and that's why you know, that's one reason why our organization exists to try to press to ensure accountability so that care and and quality of life for residents improve. But in the absence of any uh, or, or of penalties of any meaningful penalties and very few penalties are levied against nursing homes, even when residents die, there's, uh, it sends a message to facilities that these deficiencies are okay. And I think you know, the work that the three of us have been doing and that Dara and I have been doing for several years really you know, points to how many, uh, how many deficiencies, even for healthcare violations, um, are not cited in a way that indicates how residents have been harmed or put in jeopardy. And therefore, you know, in the absence of those findings there's, uh, of harm or immediate jeopardy, it's very unlikely that a facility will face any kind of penalty. And so the message to facilities is that that practice or that malpractice sometimes is OK. Mm -hmm. And and we can link to I know uh, we we on our website, we have uh, some data on this. I know Kaiser uh, Health News has done some extensive reporting in this that we can link to in the show description to give the listeners an idea of the 
extent to which uh, this is going on. Um, so Dara is our, our policy wonk here, and he he knows the ins and outs of of all the uh, of all the language. Um, and you've written extens- extensively about the policy related to infection control, including the proposed rollbacks of the Trump administration. Can you talk about what's going on at the federal level uh, with regards to infection control? Yeah, absolutely, Eric. Um, So just to go back a little bit, um, during the Obama administration, uh, CMS revised the nursing home requirements of participation, and this was in 2016. And Mm. most of the requirements were implemented uh, pretty much immediately because they were largely the same standards that had been in effect for decades. Some of the newer standards were, were set to be phased in over several years, uh, and this included uh, the infection prevention as standard. Uh, and so this standard, as of now, requires nursing homes to designate at least one person, so it could be more than one person, to serve as an infection preventionist on a part-time basis uh, and to be responsible for the facility's infection prevention and control program. Uh, however, in July 2019, the Trump administration issued a proposed rule that, uh, if finalized, would roll back the infection preventionist standard to allow infection preventionists to work only uh, a quote unquote uh, sufficient amount of time instead of part time. So, CMS did not provide any indication as to what sufficient actually means. And my fear is that ultimately the rollback would make the standard unenforceable. CMS's goal, I should say, in rolling back the requirements uh, is to reduce the so-called burdens on providers. Mm-hmm. Inter- interestingly enough, however, uh, <laughs> in the 2016 final rule already did that when the Obama administration first proposed, first proposed the infection preventionist position. It described it as a quote unquote, major responsibility of one individual and called for that person to be, uh, to have uh, specialized training beyond the professional degree. So ultimately uh, what is being rolled back now to really appease the nursing home industry, it was already rolled back once before. If I can um, add to that, Eric. Yeah, Pardon yeah, me. yeah. Just to make clear for for the audience, these are the requirements have been in existence since uh, 1987 was when the nursing home reform law was passed, and there were the federal you know federal standards for nursing homes, and those regulations were first in, you know put together and promulgated in 1991. So it's always been nursing homes' responsibility to provide a professional level of care and services, including a professional level of ensuring that protocols are in place to protect residents from infection, to control and prevent you know, the spread of infection within facilities, et cetera. And the reason why those regulations you know, were changed in 2016, as, as Dara was saying, is to you know, essentially to, to kind of reframe this because the industry, as I was saying earlier, with the, you know, that the number of infection um, control and prevention violations being so high over the years is that the industry was not doing what it was required to do. And again, not every facility, but an awful lot of facilities. I think that the Kaiser Health News data from um, a 
about a couple weeks ago, I guess, found that in, in all, there were close to two-thirds of them were cited for one or more infection control deficiency during the last, you know, two or so years. So, you know, mm-hmm. so we're talking about, you know, how do we effectuate a resident right and a basic care standard that's really been in place for now, you know, almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. What is the time the timeline of of this? I, I know the I, I believe the it's still in the proposed f- phase uh, as far as the rollbacks. What are what are next steps or maybe not next steps? Well, well, the next step would be for the administration to finalize the rule, um, and we don't really have any indication as to when that will be. Given all that's going on with COVID nineteen and all, all the deaths at nursing homes, I don't imagine the administration will finalize the rollback, at least for infection preventionist requirements. Mm-hmm. But then again, I, I mean, I, who really knows? So it's more of a wait and see approach right now. Okay. Uh, and I think it's just worth adding to that. There were other things. There were a number of things, of course, as Dara mentioned, that the, that the administration is rolling back in its proposed regs. And one of the other ones that is uh, related to this is called QAPI, the uh, Quality Assessment and Performance Improvement, that every facility is required to have a QAPI committee, in essence, that is monitoring what's going on in the facility. And again, this gets at, as I was saying before, longstanding problems. Uh, Many, many, many facilities that have repeat deficiencies year after year after year from the U.S. Office of Inspector General for Health and Human Services, several reports focused on states in the past year that have found that states tend not to do a very good job ensuring that nursing homes actually follow through in their plans to correct a healthcare deficiency. So that's, again, you know, an added reason why so many of these problems mm-hmm. are, are longstanding and why we are so deeply concerned about what is going to happen you know, with the coronavirus, uh, because there's just so many weaknesses, uh, longstanding weaknesses that leave residents very vulnerable. I, I just want to know actually another standard that's um, being proposed to be ruled rolled back, and that is the facility assessment, mm. uh, which mm-hmm. uh, so this requires facilities to assess their resources essentially uh, every year to see you know what what they need to provide quality care. Uh, and make sure that residents uh, have access to quality of life. Um, and uh, this assessment would be done annually for daily operations and for emergencies. And what the what CMS is proposing is to roll that back from assessments every year to assessments every two years. Okay, so from annual to biannual. And what kind of resource is this? Physical resources, human resources, both. Uh, what are you, what are the kind of resources? So both in terms of personnel and equipment, you know, whatever is necessary to run the facility. Mm -hmm. And is the stated rationale, uh, is this another uh, burden uh, to relieve burden? (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's it's like... It's it's a it's a common word in that rollback report. I think burden is is the the magic word there. Um, So with the with the COVID nineteen, of course, the infections are a a major issue. But there's also 
secondary issues so with this that we're starting this to see pop up and I think we anticipate will uh, will affect residents and their families and that is that is a restri- visitation restrictions um, uh, so earlier this week the Buffalo re- news reported on a hospice patient in a nursing home whose wife and daughter were banned from visiting due to a state mandate aimed at halting the spread of coronavirus. And uh, there's been many other patients like this that have been reported in the media, including one that uh, that uh, was in the New York Times this morning that Richard was was uh, quoted in the article. Um, this particular patient following their report has since been transported to a hospice that has allowed visitors uh, so long as they take the proper precautions. But I think this story illustrates the challenges of striking a balance when implementing infection control practices, especially with an already isolated and vulnerable population. Um, Richard, uh, there's been movement as far as uh, as far as visitation policies over the past uh, couple weeks. Can you talk about where where policies were and how they've changed um in the last couple of weeks? The policies in terms of, from CMS, in terms of, um, you know, who can, who can come in and out of a facility in terms of inspections of facilities, which is done by the states, has changed um, over time. And, you know, of course we, you know, as a consumer organization, um, you know, vehemently, strongly support the idea and any practices that are sensible and evidence-based in respect to protecting residents from the virus because they are so vulnerable. Um, they're older adults. They tend to be medically fragile. They're in a confined space. I mean, it's a, you know, if this is not contained, uh, then we are, you know, we could face uh, disaster in, in nursing homes and for their families uh, in this country. And, and the same I'm afraid is true for people in assisted living and other adult care facilities. So what CMS has done is CMS policy, federal policy, only applies to nursing homes. It's really important that people know um, that assisted living, adult homes, ward and care, whatever they're called in your community, are not regulated by the federal government. So it doesn't apply to them. But without further ado, the in terms of nursing homes, initially at the beginning of March, CMS had talked about uh, and, and required essentially nursing homes to restrict visitors. And then on December 9th, which was last Friday the 13th, uh, in that late evening, they issued a new guidance saying that facilities should not allow any visitors into a, uh, for nursing home residents into the facility unless the resident, you know, the only exception being, excuse me, for residents who are um, dying. Does that capture it right, Sarah? Would you, mm-hmm. would you agree or am I missing it? Okay. Yeah. Yep, yeah, I, that's, that's, I that's think that's so, right. so concern, concerns, I mean, I think on its face, it makes sense. You know, it sounds reasonable. However, there's not a total, it's not like facilities are being quarantined. And so as a result, care staff, administrative staff are able to come in and out. They're not being kept in the facility. So they leave, they go back to their communities. They go back to second jobs they might have. There's a lot of facilities that rely 
on contract staff who could be working from one nursing home or to another, to a hospital, to a home care. The pay for nurse aides who provide about 90% care is very low. So I would imagine that there are a lot of nurse aides who are doing other jobs on the side. Maybe they're, you know, riding, mm -hmm. uh, driving uh, Ubers or delivering food or whatever. So there's no restrictions on them coming in and out. Obviously, the nursing homes should be taking uh, steps to ensure that they're not ill when they come in and that they are undertaking, you know, you know, basic protocols, which, as we said at the beginning of the program, really are pretty basic. We're talking about hand washing, using um, uh, antibacterials, et cetera. So our point being is that there is, from, you know, from our point of view, it just doesn't make sense to entirely exclude family members and to allow workers to come in, you know, because of their, their risk of exposure is essentially the same as those of family members outside the facility. And when you think about it, you know, if someone wants to come, you know, a family member or a friend, they're coming to see one resident, whereas the care staff who comes in from the outside and starts their day, they're going into, you know, potentially dozens of residents' rooms. They're touching all different kinds of equipment. They're in and out of the kitchen, handling food trays, handling service carts, handling uh, patient lifts, et cetera. They are, the, the risk of exposure there is much, much higher for residents in the facility than is the risk for exposure of someone who wants to come in. So our um, recommendation at this point, in essence, is that the um, there be some restrictions and that this be done, you know, in a thoughtful manner, but that family members and friends should be able to come in uh, and that there just be, you know, the same kind of safety mm -hmm. protocols put in place. And then, of course, you know, limitations in terms of, you know, perhaps in the hours of day which people can come visit um, and also, you know, limitations as in respect to, excuse me, where they can go in a facility. So I worry about the feasibility. I think that, or it sounds to me that there are, um, that there should be concerns about, about staff following precautions. Uh, as you said, some of them are working other jobs, are gaining exposure elsewhere, uh, uh, with that said, I worry about the feasibility that these facilities who are already understaffed, who are already having difficulties getting their own staff to follow protocol, to to uh, manage family members, uh, and just add more variables into this complex equation. Um, what... What steps can they take, uh, given given the the already well, existing? I, I mean, I think that's a great in, question. On that because you know, as I said at the start, in talking about this, our first concern is, of course, you know, resident safety. Um, I would say that you know, but the the protocols for stopping spread of the coronavirus are really simple. I mean, we know that 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 soap and water breaks up the, the coronavirus or breaks up the, the outer shell, whatever it's called, of the membrane of the coronavirus and mm -hmm. disenables it. So requiring, you know, 
from what I understand, facilities are taking people's temperature of everyone who comes into the facility, vendors, as well as, as you know, care and administrative staff. I think that it makes sense to, uh, you know, to do that, obviously, for family members. I think limiting the places where family members can go would also make sense and would, to get at your, your point, make this operationable for for the facility that it wouldn't be wouldn't be a big burden and then you know we're recommending to uh to cms and, and to congress that they you know allocate human resources like you know i know that some governors have called for the armed forces to for help uh there you know the national guard etc that you know you can bring in to bear other um you know other personnel that could do some monitoring i mean and so I think that there are a lot of things that could be done over the, um, you know, over the course of the next days and weeks. And again, obviously limited. So, you know, in the past uh, or, you know, under federal rules, a resident could have visitors at any time. And there's really no limit on the number of visitors. So obviously that would need to be different for the time being, that you would perhaps only have one visitor and, um, and not, you know, and again, limit the hours mm-hmm. over the time where there are more staff around. And so even if you made a, a, a safe space, you know, say in a, um, you know, a lot of facilities have a lounge or something by where the, uh, where the front desk or the reception is making a space there and, you know, for people to visit. You know, don't forget that there are a lot of things that used to go on in nursing homes that aren't going on now in terms of group activities, in terms of group dining, you know, all those things have been pretty much shut down. So, you know, people around to do that. Again, we are certainly supporting going down you know, the road for, um, you know, funding to implement that. And I think it's important to say, and and I'm sorry I didn't say it further, that uh, Dara has, has written a lot on this, that the, um, the mm-hmm. family members, not only, it's not just that they're coming to visit and providing, you know, a friendly face, which is very, very important, especially for residents with dementia, uh, residents who are upset, you know, et cetera, but that they are often providing really vital care. So, you know, a lot of residents, you know, what we're hearing, and mm-hmm. I frankly didn't realize over the years is that they are, you know, providing, you know, they're bringing food, they're helping their residents to eat and to drink. Um, so, you know, so the residents don't become dehydrated or malnourished. Those are both very significant issues residents and unfortunately also widespread problems. So, um, you know, that is, is really is really vital, that they're monitoring to make sure they're not neglected or abused. I mean, right now, about 8% of nursing home residents have a pressure ulcer, which are almost, you know, according to, to medical mm-hmm. experts, almost always preventable or treatable with appropriate care. Uh, without having the residents' eyes there, excuse me, the family members' eyes there to see what is going on, um, and to, you know, ad- address that and advocate for their resident with the facility or getting the resident out of the facility if necessary, uh, seeking medical care. Those residents are in, you know, a lot of residents, I should say, are being put in, in pretty certain danger. Um, are they certainly being put at risk mm-hmm. and at media risk? Well, thank you. Thank you, Richard. And thank you. Thank you, Dara. Uh, for coming on and and chatting about about this on the nursing home 411 podcast uh, and it was 
good to get your perspective and hope to have you on again soon. Thanks for listening to the Nursing Home 411 podcast by the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. We have more episodes including discussions and interviews with long-term care experts, and you can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, nursinghome411.org. Our music is by Silverman Sound Studios. Stay safe and wash your hands. Until next time.